So I wanted to continue on with the theme of the church, and some of this will be review for sure, but uh, some of this I also teach in the, in the uh, membership class, so it'll, it'll be good for us to go through it together. The church, roles and responsibilities, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So as fellow believers, we've been drawn together. It's fair to say that most of us would not know each other, not be hanging out together if it weren't for this church. But it's a blessing to, to know you guys. But we're called out of the world into the body of Christ here on earth as church for a purpose. And that purpose is to worship God. We worship God in many different ways. And I'm going to focus on just a few this morning. First, we worship Him by being a unified body. Secondly, we worship Him by, by loving one another. And thirdly, we worship him by operating in the gifts that he's blessed us with. All those things together bring glory to God and honor. And in all those ways, we're also conformed into the image of his son as we rightly reflect Jesus to a world that so desperately needs him. The church is the light that is brought into the world. It's the body of Christ, it's, it's also the bride of Christ. So the church gathering provides for the context of the unity that Paul talks about to the Ephesian church. It's a spiritual unity. It's not an ecumenical unity. It's not a unity that would lead you to believe that consists in doing away with denominations. It's not an external unity of organization or even a political unity. This is not one nation, one people unity. It's the only unity that the New Testament knows, and it's the unity and the only unity that should really interest us. John 17, 20 to 23, Jesus prays, I am not praying only on their behalf, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their testimony, that they will be all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, I pray that they will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. The glory that you gave to me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may, may be completely one so that the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them just as you have loved me. So Jesus prays that we would be one with the Father and the Son, just as all that Christ did was on behalf of the Father, so it is with us that we can do nothing apart from Christ. Jesus prays that we remain in Him as He remained in the Father. The unity that has been given, uh, this unity has been given us because of our common faith that we have in Jesus Christ. The world doesn't know this unity. The world can't understand this unity. Uh, the world can't see this unity, but they see something different in us because of this unity. This is Christ in us. We've been taken out of the world and adopted into the family of God. We've been given His Holy Spirit. He's made us His own. He has adopted us as His sons and His daughters. We have the truth. We have the words of life. 
and the ability to walk in that truth as we're guided and empowered by his Holy Spirit. Isaiah 49, 6 says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Throughout time, God's eternal plan has always been to display his glory throughout the world. In the Old Testament, he had the nation of Israel. He gave them his laws and his ceremonies that they should have been followed by both individuals and the corporate nation. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was created to represent God to a world that was following after false gods. God's hand was on the nation of Israel as they followed his laws and worshipped his name. The outside nations looked at Israel as a peculiar people. It was evidenced by their resilience and their prosperity. They endured and even prospered through much trial and testing. They were a light to the nations and a witness to the fact that God's hand was definitely upon them. In the Old Testament, Israel was called his son. They were called his spouse, the apple of his eye, his vine, and his flock. Through these names, God foreshadowed the work he would eventually do through Christ and his church. As the flock that was scattered would eventually be gathered together, the gathered flock would represent Christ here on earth, Jesus Christ being the head and the church being the body. The New Testament word ecclesia derives from the verb root uh, of kaleo, which means to call. So another definition of the church is the called out ones. God himself has called the church into existence. Throughout the New Testament, there are many scriptures referring to the call of God. Romans 1, 6 and 7, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. And 2 Timothy 1, 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So God has called the entire church into existence. The church is not something that accidentally came into existence. It's a result of God's predetermined sovereign call. God has always had a people for his own possession. In the Old Testament, he had Israel. In the New Testament, he has the church. The church does not replace Israel, but as a result of Jesus Christ coming and fulfilling the laws and ceremonies that were required to be followed and observed by Israel. You could say true Israel is actually the nucleus of the true church today. The church, another way to put it is the church is the fruition of true Israel, not to be mistaken for the the, the nation Israel today. So in the Old Testament, God's people were ethnically distinct. In the New Testament, the church is ethnically diverse. In the Old Testament, they lived under their old government with God, their own government, with God-given laws. In the New Testament, we live among the rulers of the nations. In the Old Testament, they were required to circumcise their male offspring. In the New Testament, we're required to baptize new believers. So Jesus Christ accounts for the changes 
that came, came about from the Old Testament to the New. He fulfills the requirements of the law, Romans 10.4. He now circumcises our hearts instead of our flesh, Romans 2.29. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Galatians 3.28. We are now called to obey the governing authorities as well as obeying the commandments of God. So on the day of Pentecost, true, true Israel was baptized with the Holy Spirit and became the New Testament church. Though the church and Israel are not identical, they're closely related through Jesus Christ. Israel was called to be the faithful servant, but was unfaithful to him ultimately. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13, Jesus Christ is that faithful servant, Matthew 4, 1 to 11. In the Old Testament, the high priest would offer sacrifices for the people of God. And then Hebrews 7.27, we are now brought near by the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1.18-19. Another di- a few differences are the Old Testament, the temple was located in Jerusalem and, and represented by a physical building. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is actually that temple as Christ dwells within us, we are actually called the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3.16. In the Old Testament, many promises were made to the people of God. Christ, in fact, uh, fulfills all those promises, 1 Corinthians 1.20-22. So God has consistently had a plan to glorify his name through the people he has chosen over time, even during the time of Israel's rebellion. God always had a remnant of people who believed. In this day and age, he's chosen his church to be a witness of his glory and his power. So that's why we're spending so much time talking about the church. The church is the community of the people who are living in the last days, which began with the birth of Christ. Some other names for the church as listed in the Bible are the salt of the earth, the family of believers, the family of God, and his bride. So one of the most prominent themes in the entire New Testament is the call to love one another. Jesus could have not put it more plainly when he said in John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And then Paul tells us in Romans 12, 10, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The love that Christians are called to is it's not just a feeling. It's a love that works itself out in very concrete actions. We're going to look at the different ways in which the New Testament describes how Christians are to love one another. Romans twelve fifteen tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Ephesians 4.2 tells us to bear with one another. Ephesians 4.32 tells us to be kind to one another and forgive one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says that we should encourage one another and build one another up. Hebrews 3.13 tells us to exhort one another. Hebrews 10.24 says to stir one another up to love and good works. James 5.26 tells us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. And then 1 Peter 4, 9-10 says we are to show hospitality to to each other and use our gifts to serve one another. 
And there's, of course, many, many other passages too. The point is all these actions require that we have relationship. You can't encourage, exhort, stir one another up to love and good works if you're just casually running into them every Sunday once a week. You have to have relationship. You have to be spending time with one another. And we're actually sharing life together. We're, we're a family here at this church. You have to also be open to hearing exhortation, encouragement, and even rebuke when it's necessary from one another. So why does God bring us together as a body of believers? What can we do together that we can't do as individuals? And how are we supposed to function together as the body of Christ? God has chosen the church to represent him here on earth. As a body of believers, we should have a very productive and fruitful ministry. As a community of believers, as a church body here at Pacific Hope, we should have an impact on one another and on those that we encounter. In the words of Christ in his prayer in John 17, so the world may believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. So our lives individually and collectively should bear witness that Christ is at work in us and through us. The body of believers should reflect Christ, bring honor to Christ, and ultimately bring glory to Christ. And sometimes the privilege of Christian community, of spending life together, has been lost. God has designed his church in such a way that we're encouraged to become uh, interdependent on one another as we're dependent upon Christ. That's hard for us to do. We're very independent people. So when we begin to think and act biblically as the body of Christ, we can take advantage of that very special privilege. As Christians, just as Israel was, we're a peculiar people. We're called out of a relationship with the world and a love for the world into a relationship and love for God, our creator, and a love for one another. Our lives are no longer our own. We've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We've been redeemed. We're no longer slaves to our selfish desires. We've become slaves of Christ and actually servants of one another. Romans 12, 4 to 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of another. So as members of this body, we each have a different function, and those functions don't make us any better or, or worse than one another, or any less than one another. So the important thing is to remember that these differences contribute to the betterment of the body as a whole. One person is not any more or less important. We've all been given gifts. They're by his grace, and by his grace alone. We're each important in and of ourselves if we contribute to the body as a whole. A body that is functioning properly is a sign of a healthy church, one that is glorifying Christ, is useful in ministry, is growing in love, and able to contribute to the needs of the saints and the furtherance of the gospel. So we're bound together in love for the work of the ministry, both the teacher and the disciple. We know that we cannot receive anything unless it is given us from heaven. We also know that the gifts are for the building up of the body of Christ. We were ne never meant to have all the gifts because then we wouldn't need to depend on one another. 
We're also told not to envy the gifts of one another. We're to be content with our calling as well as our gifting. We are naturally very selfish people. We tend to forget that we've been given gifts. They're not rewards. They're not the result of of something that we've earned, and they're not to be spent on ourselves. Self-centered ambition needs to be replaced with God-centered ambition. John the Baptist was a man who understood this and understood his role. He knew that he was called to prepare the way for the Lord. When when Christ came, John did not have a problem handing over the baton to Jesus. John 3.28, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He, may, he must become greater, and I must become less. Those were the words of John the Baptist. So John was content to serve in the capacity that he was called and gifted. Got a quote here from John, James Montgomery Boy, Voice. What is the greatest reward one can have in serving Jesus? It is simply the joy of serving, the joy of being faithful and useful servant of Christ. We serve him as we serve one another out of our love for Christ as we are filled by the Holy Spirit, end quote. We also serve one another in humility. Christ must increase and we must decrease. John the Baptist understood this. And so must we. In and of ourselves, our works are compared actually to filthy rags. Outside of Christ, our works amount to nothing. If we serve one another out of a wrong motivation, that there is something to be gained or achieved, or missing the point, Jesus himself came to serve, not to be served. We serve out of obedience. We serve out of love. We serve in our weakness because he is strong, We don't give out of excess, but we give out of faithfulness and obedience to him. So I want to be careful here in explaining that our worship of God must also precede our work for God. Cain's gift was a a beautiful example of that. Um, Cain's gift to God was unacceptable because his heart was not right before God. God always wants worshipers before he wants workers. You have the story of, of Mary and Martha. God always calls us back to the very thing for which we were created, and that is to worship him. Then and only then will our work flow out of that deep worship that we have of him. So our work is only acceptable as, we, as our worship is acceptable. It's very important to understand this, or we can end up building a religion that's based on works, based on uh, trying to earn his acceptance by doing things. We are saved by grace, through faith. It is, not, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, lest any man boast. He also gave us gifts, Ephesians 4.12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
The Bible lists a few ways in which we can serve one another as we use our gifts. We serve the Lord. We bring glory to the Lord. This is by no means an exhaustive list. There are many, many different ways to serve him. This is just a sample of the various giftings within the body. One of the gifts that's listed is the gift of giving. People with the gift of giving live life with an open hand. They are the ones who give above and beyond what is required. They are quick to meet a need that arises in the church. They do so cheerfully, gracefully, giving because they understand they've been given much. You need these gifted people in the body of Christ or a lot of ministries would actually go unfunded. A healthy church member ties, but one with the gift of giving supplies a surplus that is needed to do, do much ministry. We have a benevolence buddy, budget here at Pacific Hope Church, but I can tell you that we rarely have to tap into it because the needs are getting met by the various body members in the body. Uh, just hearing about a need and, and meeting that need, it's, it's a beautiful example. Philippians 4 15 to 17. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul was definitely blessed by the church at Philippi. But he was, I think he was more blessed by the result uh, that was given to their credit for their, for their giving, for the fruit that it created in their lives. Their giving was actually an expression of the progress and the faith that Paul talked about in verse 1, uh, 25 of, of the same book. The fruit was also evidence, evidence that the relationship with Christ was healthy and was growing. I think Paul was more excited about that than, than anything else. Another gift that's mentioned in the Bible is the gift of helps. Again, just as in giving, we're all asked to be of help, but there are always those that step up when there is some, some kind of need. And I think without this gift in the body, a lot of things would not get done. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes here. Floors are mopped, tables are prepared, bathrooms cleaned, uh, plants trimmed, uh, you, you name it. I mean, there's so many things that go on behind the scenes. We show up after service and food is set out over in the, uh, the fellowship hall. So, again, these people in the body are, are, are critical. Um, I believe this is the, the heartbeat of the church, uh, helping one another, helping people move, uh, things that just go on all the time. This is a gift that loves one another as we're ministered to in so many different ways. A healthy church member definitely helps, but the one with the gift of helps goes on goes beyond the call of duty. Galatians 6, 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Another great gift is the gift of evangelism. This is a gift, I think, that goes unnoticed. We're all definitely called to share the gospel. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The church at this time was under much persecution. There was a lot of hostility to the faith. Paul was asking the church to be ready to make a defense for the hope that they had, to be ready to share the gospel to the world that is in in darkness. We also live in some turbulent times. We have the hope. We have the light. We have the good news. We have the gospel. We all need to be ready to share that hope. There are definitely some who are uh, more easily do that in a more free way than others. I know that um, for, for some of us, it's, it, it's hard, but I think that a church that is sharing its faith, a church that is a, is a witness in that way, is a church that is healthy and growing in, in, in faith and fruitfulness. Healthy sheep actually beget other healthy sheep, and we have a lot of healthy sheep here. If the word is being preached, and it is here, and the word is always effectual, then we know that reproduction will naturally occur. So we should all have a very clear understanding of the gospel and be willing and ready to share it. That's one of the things we ask in our membership class is, is that people would just give us the gospel. And it's, uh, it's really a neat time to, to go over what we believe and why we believe it. And we should always be ready to be able to share that with others. Another gift that is very important is the gift of teaching. I believe we all need somebody that to be pouring into us as well as us pouring into someone else. There's always going to be a teacher and there's always going to be a student. And I believe we are always one or, or other at the same time. There's always going to be someone who knows more than us and there's always going to be someone who knows less than us. First and foremost, we're all disciples of Jesus Christ as he ministers to us through his word by his Holy Spirit. John 8, 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So as we share life with one another, we can all learn from the lessons that have been taught. The word of God changes us from who we were to who we are to become as new creatures in Christ. In in that way, we learn from one another as we see God working through his Holy Spirit to conform all of us into the image of his Son through much pruning and shaping trials. 2 Timothy 2.2, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Even though we are all teachers in some way, there are those that have the gift, those that are able to communicate God's word very clearly and effectively. I think the most gifted teacher of all was our Lord Jesus Christ. He still teaches us today through his living and and holy word. Paul was was a great teacher, gave us some of the the greatest books of the Bible. Some present-day gifted teachers might be R.C. Sproul or John MacArthur, those who are able to take the very complicated and, and make it simple, make it easy to understand. We have a gifted teacher who stands in this pulpit week after week. We have a gifted teacher who's going to follow me this morning. Uh, others like myself have to work a little harder at it. But we all, we're all teachers, whether we know it or not. But the gift of teaching is usually seen in you by others. 
If someone sees the gift of teaching in you, a good place to practice would be teaching the children. If you can teach kids, you can, you can teach anyone. As I said, there are many gifts within the body of Christ. These gifts are ours to exercise. And like all, exer- all the other exercising, the more you use it, the better you'll get. So we, we don't want these gifts to atrophy. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. So the church is one because the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. The church is also diverse because the Spirit distributes different gifts to all the different believers. The gift of the Holy Spirit creates the church's unity, while the gifts of the Holy Spirit diversify the church's ministry. As the Westminster Confession states, that the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And as a church, that goal remains the same for us. In our unity, in our union with Christ, we bring glory to God. In our service, as we are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we bring glory to God. And that, that service should bring us joy. So as the church were called the bride of Christ, as the church remains faithful to the bridegroom, as the church remains obedient to her calling, we will bring glory to God. The world will look upon us and know that God has sent a son. Not that they will necessarily believe, but they will know that God has done something different in us. We're a peculiar people. The world will see, hopefully, the hope that we have. And that hope that we have does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we are called to give everyone who asks a reason for that hope. And that reason is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to wrap up, let us as a church bring glory to God. Let the world see us and, and, and see God in us. Let us be a light to this neighborhood, to this city, in our unity, in our love for one another, in our service to one another as we use the, God, the gifts that God has blessed us for the building up of this body. And the result would be that God would be glorified.